but those are the stories that you go and you say, well, if, if they could do it right 20 years ago, then we can do it now. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. So welcome to Raising Rare. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Terry Pirovalakis, another dad whose son has a rare disease. He is on a quest similar to Sanath and Ramya's. He is looking for a cure for his son and working to raise the funds needed to pay for the research. Before we get started, though, Sanath, what's happening in Raghav's life? He's happy as usual. Um, but the most exciting thing is he's getting a cochlear implant, and that surgery would give him uh, the cochlear implant would give him the chance to consistently hear sounds that he currently is not. With all of his other uh, challenges, we we don't have a direct solution, but hopefully for his auditory problems, um, the cochlear implant would be a good solution because we already ha- are, are seeing a lot of signs that he's he's hearing well. He, it's just not consistently hearing. So it's sort of on and off. And the cochlear implant would give him that consistent access to hearing, which means then he can start to respond to his name and know when people are entering the room and not be sort of surprised by them and so on. And 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 more more importantly, longer term, he if when he goes to a school, he can at least listen to what's happening if not if not speak back. And so we don't really know whether he'll get his speech or not, because it's a lot of the motor skills that he lacks today that is necessary for speech, but at least he'll get his hearing. I have to tell you, I'm really excited hearing this news that he's getting a cochlear implant. It's it's going to be life-changing for you guys. And even if he's not speaking as we speak, he, he's going to have the same development of language that you guys have learned with him through sign language and things. So I think it's I think it's really exciting. So congratulations on getting to the point of doing that tomorrow and good luck with the surgery. So Terry, could you take a few minutes and tell our listeners who you are and share your story? Yeah, for sure. So my name is, uh, as you mentioned, Terry Pervalakis. I live out of Toronto, Canada. And um, my my son, Michael, was diagnosed on April 2nd of last year with uh, ultra rare uh, neurodegenerative disease called spastic paraplegia 50. And uh, on that day, we were told that he would never be able to talk, walk, um, that he would slowly become paralyzed and then have limited mental capacity. It's a, it's a devastating news that any parent, you know, doesn't ever want, never wants to hear. For us, it was devastating. We went home, we died, you know, we, we basically collapsed on the floor and we don't, I don't even know how we even got home, to be honest with you. And then we, we started doing research pretty much 20 minutes after to see what, what is this disease, you know, because they didn't really tell us. It was just, you know, he, he has SPG 50, go home, love him. We found another family that was out of Boston, called them up and we, you know, crying, help us, you know, what's going on with our children. And over the next two weeks, they helped us through this crazy journey. And on top of that, they were doing a gene, they were getting ready to do a gene therapy program for their child. So that's how this all kicked off. So how many people have spastic paraplegia? There's about 61 in the world of, of this specific one, SPG 50. 
Um, our, ours is a, it has four complexes below it. It's an AP, it's a AP4 complex with four genetic uh, deficiencies. So there's SPG uh, 47, 50, 51, and 52. And the way it works, <clears throat> if you're missing one gene, the entire protein complex fails. So in essence, we all have the same disease. Same outward disease, the same clinical signs and symptoms, uh, but different, different background mutations that have caused it. Different background mutations. So there's, in total, there's over 200 children with AP4, but specifically AP4M1 or SPG50, what Michael has, there's 61 known today, which is probably well underestimated. Yeah, it's one of those things that probably doesn't get diagnosed until there's some, some awareness of it um, in the medical community. For us specifically, right, uh, for us specifically what happens is <clears throat> um, children will be diagnosed with uh, cerebral palsy because those are the clinical signs. And then what happens usually is when the child's about 10 or 12, they'll notice that it's spread beyond the legs and it's starting to move up to the hands. And that's when clinicians say, okay, this is no longer cerebral palsy. It's not just happens to get worse in the legs, but it's going to the arms and then they do genetic testing and then they find out that this is what they have. So usually it's, it's not, lately it's been younger children because of DNA testing, but now it's the follow-up on what's going on with these older children as well. It's crazy because a lot of the diseases end up being misdiagnosed as cerebral palsy. The other two kids with with the same condition as Raghav in the U.S., they were misdiagnosed as cerebral palsy. And, and this is a common story that I hear from a lot of you know rare diseases where all of them are grouped under cerebral palsy. So maybe that's where we should go talk to and, and really find those get get actual diagnosis for these kids. Yeah, it's those panels, right? It's the epilepsy, it's the spasticity, it's the microcephaly panels, right? Those are the panels that we all have to be on. And unfortunately, getting on those panels is extremely difficult. Yeah, I can remember when I was growing up, there was a guy who was maybe two or three years older than me down the street, and he had cerebral palsy and quite, quite severe. And I keep wondering, well, did he have cerebral palsy or did he have something else that we just didn't know how to characterize it back then in the old days when genes were just something we thought about. We hadn't actually identified them yet. Now I feel old. Thanks, guys. How will this impact Michael's life? So basically, the, the disease is kind of, it's a kind of a cruel one, to be honest with you. So around six months of age, everything, up until six months, everything is normal. Head growth, you know, development, everything. And then what happens is the mother's protein goes away. And that's when things start showing up. So in Michael's case, it was uh, smaller. Microcephaly was causing smaller head in his, in his case and something called low muscle tone. So we went to the doctor. They said, you know, he just has microcephaly. It'll probably get better. Don't worry. We've seen this before. Uh, and unfortunately, it didn't get any better. And his low muscle tone got worse. So we got ref referred to um, infectious disease. They thought he had Zika. So we went down that path and we also started a lot of physiotherapy. And in Canada, we don't have a great early intervention program. So we started spending all of our money on that. And then that, that panned out, he didn't have CSV, he didn't have Zika, he didn't have all the common infectious disease. And we went to a neurology and the guy said, you know, let's do some testing. And they thought he had something called CMT4. Uh, uh, no, it was, it was some other extremely rare disease uh, that affects protein, but it wasn't that in the end. So we, we found out that he had that SPG50 through um, a West report, whole exome sequencing. And uh, that's where our diagnosis saga kind of ended. It's, it's, it's challenging once you get the diagnosis, right? Like you're, you're sort of 
have this report in your hand and, and, and they say, you know, go home and do what, what best you can for your kid. And they don't even tell you what's going to happen in the future for these kids. And they, they, they don't have, even have a plan for management of these, of these kids. I mean, that's how happened. That's, that's what happened to us. Like they basically said, yeah, he's, he's the one, only person that we know about, about this condition. We don't know anything about this condition. So just go home uh, and we'll call you back. How was your, how was your sort of post-diagnosis journey? Like what was, uh, what, what happened there? Ours, ours was really good, actually. It was a great one. Uh, you know, I'm being sarcastic, but it was, it was, uh, it was you know, we're in the room. Uh, he has SPG 50. Go home and we'll send you some more data tonight in an email. So we're sitting at home and we don't know what it is. We, don't, we didn't even remember the name of the disease. Six hours later, we get home and they send us an email with like a very brief blurb from Nord on... <laughs> You know, oh, there's like, you know, 10 kids in the world and this is the disease. And that's when we found that family. And then that, that was it. That was, you know, we had a, a meeting scheduled a month later. But by that time that meeting happened, I had already arranged to start our clinical trial, our, our proof of concept. So, you know, I went home that night. We met the family. We understood the disease. And then I knew what I needed to do. I needed to do a gene therapy. And that's when I started reading probably a few hundred thousand articles. I went to a conference in Washington, the ASGCT conference, which is not really meant for patient advocacy groups, but I did it anyways. And I aligned a meeting with six of the seven world experts in gene therapy, specifically vectors to the brain, not to anywhere else. I met with them there, had conversations. And then the seventh one wasn't at the conference. So I flew to London, uh, England, and I met with him as well. And then I flew back to Texas and I signed with uh, Dr. Stephen Gray to do a proof of concept. So by the time the meeting, that we were supposed to have, excuse me, with the geneticist to talk about Michael's disease, we were already doing a proof of concept. So it was like, don't even bother with the meeting. We can, we'll figure it out. That's incredible. Wow. Wow. That's, how, how did you, how did you, I mean, one of the challenges that everybody faces is, you know, you have this devastating disease and you have this mountain in front of you that you need to climb and you, you can't even see the mountain very clearly, right? It's all foggy. You don't really, you really know what to do, but how did you get to the point of sort of knowing that you had to do gene therapy? Like, what was that? Could you sort of zoom in there and, and talk about that journey? Well, yeah, our, our fog lasted two days. <laughs> you know, you're walking outside, you're, you're, you don't know where you're going, you're crying on the street. And then it was clear. It was very clear for me. You know, it was almost like all these years of my life culminated into what I needed to do for Michael. Like I do, um, I run a, um, a strategy division out of a bank in Canada. And we do like, you know, IT uh, strategy. So cloud compute, artificial intelligence, <clears throat> large call centers. And all these years I've been building these large, complex things. And I've been helping with, you know, helping people with their lives. And we built our home, for example, we, you know, all these things and nothing ever came easy for us ever. Anything we ever did for some reason just was never straightforward. So this was almost like it was destiny for us to do this. So once we got the diagnosis, it was, it was, you know, I just do what I normally do, which is research like crazy, become like almost an expert in it. And then, and then I knew what we need to do. Unfortunately, the technology we have right now is not good enough for what we really want. Right. So when, you know, people talk about, you know, what we're doing, you know, is it a hundred percent? No, it's not. It's, it's like 5% of what we want. But if we do nothing, nothing is worse than doing what we're trying to do here. Right. And, uh, and thankfully we're in this age of gene therapy 
um, or gene replacement therapy specifically that we can actually do something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's fascinating how you, how you said like your, your, everything that you did in your life sort of culminated here because Kevin, if you remember in one of our original conversations, that's pretty much what, what, what I said was, was everything that I did in my life sort of led to this point and, and it sort of prepared me to this point. And it's, um, yeah, it was the connecting the dots episode. I think it was episode two or three where you talked about just keep laying down the dots and they'll connect themselves, you know, quoting Steve Jobs. And that's true. And more and more of these conversations I have with people in the rare disease community, you rare parents all have that story. You've, you've been prepared for this and you didn't know it. Well, what was crazy is that. You know, when we had, when Michael was, you know, in the womb, we were, we were about to go on vacation to Jamaica and uh, we were like, no, 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 we shouldn't go because there's a high risk of Zika. You know, who would have ever have known that our child would have a disease that, you know, causes similar symptoms to Zika, but we didn't even go, you know, I mean, like literally it's everything in our life was a struggle. And, and now we're in this fight for our ch- child, right? We're fighting every day to do something, right? Uh, arrange manufacturing. We're trying to raise the funds that we need to even do this crazy journey. And then on top of that, helping other other parents try to you know navigate this crazy world that we had no one to help us in this crazy world. We had, pe- we had obviously we had amazing people helping us, but it's not like you can just pick up the phone and be like, hey, you know, director of NCATS, can you help me out and figure this out? You know, you value their time and you use it very specifically, right? Well, and it's also when you say that, you know, arranging manufacturing, arranging, I worked for Pfizer for 30 years and we had like a whole division that did that. The, the logistics of manufacturing isn't, isn't just easy. Oh, let's just make it and it'll be there. No, you've got to make what you need to make and prove that it is what it is and test it and test it before you give it to your son for the first time. MTA, MSAs, contracts, legal contracts between universities, you know, Everything, everything is, is, uh, is not meant for a foundation. It's meant for large corporations, even the funding model of how you pay these companies. We've been very fortunate that a lot of companies see it, or all of them have seen it, that we are a small foundation trying to save a child. So they've been giving us giant breaks in the cost. Um, thankfully, or otherwise, our $3 million budget would be $10 million. So how did the two of you guys meet? Uh, I think we got connected through a gentleman named VJ Sapani. Uh, Sanath and I are, we're, we're basically, you know, same mindset, you know, do whatever it takes to get our child, uh, give our child a better life. And the three of us got connected. And then, you know, shortly after that, we started the Slack channel and, and that's when our kind of our journey began on, you know, not just helping our children. And, and that's something that from the very beginning has been very difficult for me because you know, you think you're going to start this crazy journey and all these families, these 61 other families are going to fight with you. But, you know, you got to imagine that everybody has their own journey. And some people can barely afford therapy. Some people are just trying to get through their lives. Some people just, you know, maybe have given up. Maybe some people not given up, but, you know, have accepted the fate of their child. Everybody's in a different path and you can never judge anybody for that path. But for us, it was, you know, a year and a half and no one, no one else is kind of on this journey with us, but there's other families out there and other parents that want to help their kids doing the same journey. So that's how we met. And now, and we're better for it now with all these other families, either some 
behind us and some more ahead of us. And we're all helping each other through the Slack channel. Yeah, and the channel has been phenomenal. I, I think, you know, I, I remember this. I was in um, a vacation to meeting one of, my, one of my friends in the Bay Area um, when we started this WhatsApp group that then quickly sort of bellowed into the Slack channel. Too quickly, but we couldn't track things, right? We couldn't track things, exactly. I thought WhatsApp was cool. And then once we got Slack, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. So I've used Slack some, and I'm in a couple different communities, not quite as motivated as you guys are. But how, how often are you guys interacting on that? And how, I mean, you were saying you were pinging each other beforehand. Is it like part of your life? Like, uh, Well, I think what it is, is we all check it. You know, I think I, I check it, you know, multi, multiple times a day to see if anybody needs any help. I think everybody else does as well. But again, we're all <laughs> trying to help our kids, trying to live our lives, you know, like two minutes before here, I was running, a, running in the other room trying to get my kids set up for school. So, you know, as much as we want to be on it, um, I think we just go on it when we need something. And that's what it's meant for. It's meant to help each other. It's not meant to have a chat and it'd be great to have chats, but it's more of, hey, I'm trying to do this specific thing. Where do I go? What do I do? And that's fine. That's what we're, that's what it's there for. In our local community, our town here in, in Salem, Connecticut, there's a, there's a page on Facebook. And I've noticed that people have started using it like you just used your Slack channel, which is, uh, I need a plumber. Uh, anybody know of a contractor? I saw something happen. What should I do? And then, boom, you know, 15 different answers that that person can digest and go, oh, great. I'll pick this plumber. Same, much simpler problem. But I think it's kind of similar in what you guys are doing. You're just helping each other out with, you know, here's some clues. Here's some ideas. Here's a perspective. And, and a non-judgmental community, right? I, I, I can go in and say, you know, I really need help finding a researcher to do blah. And, and someone will come in and say, oh, yeah, did you talk to A, B, and C person? And I've, I've spoken to him and I'll send out an intro. And that's how, that's how you introed me to Dr. Dr. Gray as well, Terry, right? Uh, a while back, I think. It, yeah, this is how I've, I've gotten most of my intros and most connections. And this is also a good way to kind of know what others are doing out there to, to see if you can maybe copy them. Yeah, and we're very selective. We're, we're all trying to be selective about who go on, goes on there because the problem is we don't want a bunch of um, individuals going on there that really have no intentions of moving forward, right? Because this takes a lot of effort. It's not a, this is probably the hardest struggle of our lives. And what we don't want to do is have people on there that initially want to do something and then realize it's too hard and then, and then move on. We want people that are actually going to do something for their children. And that's a hard call to make because, as you said, everybody has a different journey and everybody's a different journeyer. They all have their own life that, that led them to this and their own perspectives, skill sets, whatever it is. And motivation and, and follow through is one of those skills that you need to kind of test right away. Yeah, and I think Dr. Gray and a lot of doctors, they set the expectation very early. Like Dr. Gray said it like day one for me. He sent me a piece of paper and it said, you know, you need to raise X and your life is going to be Y and you're not going to be, you know, like this is, you know, this is real, like the real, the real time. Right. And I'd set the same expectation for everybody that I talk to. When someone calls me up, I say, listen, you need to raise $4 million or $5 million. Your road is not going to be easy. It may not even work. And I, I set the expectation very upfront. And, and a lot of times people are like, well, actually, you know, to be fair, every single person that's called me and has asked for my time, has been committed to doing this, right? And I think it's because of, you know, the John Crowleys and the, and the Ryan Dance and the, 
um, the Lori Sames and the, you know all these individuals that did this before us that we're following in their footsteps, right? That you know sacrificed everything to to do it for their children. And I think that's you know we that's where I get my motivation from. Anyways, I get it from you know the dance, the the Sames, everybody that's really put themselves like imagine twenty years ago raising a million dollars like the dance did. You know, and, and finding Dr. Kakis in some UCLA lab that was building, you know, I mean, how, how does that even happen? But that's before the Internet. But those are the stories that you go and you say, well, if, if they could do it right 20 years ago, then we can do it now. You, you come into a problem, there's a solution for it. And it may not be right away, but at least if you start thinking through the problem now, you can get there. An example is people call me up all the time and their gene is massive. Well, guess what? Let's start working on gene editing or let's do drug screening or whatever it may be. So when you're, if you're starting off in this journey, don't let anybody tell you it's impossible, right? Raising money. Yeah, it's, it's hard, but it's not impossible. Curing your child. It'll be very, very hard, but it's not impossible. And, and, and I think that's the most important thing I want to say to people is, you know, don't let anybody ever let you down saying that you can't help your child. You can help your child. You just got to fight for them. Right. And I think that's the most important thing I want to just, you know, relate to people that um, there's always hope. And those donations go to spg50.org. Yeah, curespg50.org. Curespg50. Uh, or you can go to uh, GoFundMe and type in curespg50. And uh, yeah, every dollar goes 100% to this treatment of our children. And uh, with everybody's support, we can, like I said, curespg50, right? One day. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. Raising Rare.